Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good afternoon and greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution in Military Affairs, a podcast about war and warfare and the future of armed conflict. I'm your host, Amos Fox, and thank you for joining me today. In today's introductory episode, we're discussing maneuver warfare and maneuver warfare theory. To many scholars and practitioners today, maneuver is much more a philosophy and thought process than it is just a method of warfare. Concepts like economy of force, surprise, and John Boyd's OODA loop are integral components to maneuver. Let's take a moment and look at those in more detail. First, you've got economy of force, which is based on the idea of rational action and the rational decision-making associated with economic theory of rational action. The idea here is that anyone, uh, you, me, uh, any adversary in conflict is going to make the most of their uh, finite resources. They're going to efficiently use those resources. And to tie that to maneuver, uh, they're going to avoid strength and attack weakness at any point at which they can. So that's where the idea of economy of force fits in with maneuver. Closely related to that is the idea of surprise. So in, in part to economize the use of one's resources and to attack weakness, you have to surprise an opponent or an adversary. So you have to hit them where they don't expect and you have to hit them when they don't expect to be hit. Uh, Or you don't hit them at all and you completely bypass them and then somehow form some sort of cognitive paralysis on 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 their war fighting system so that it collapses. And so surprise is an integral part there. And then you've got the John Boyd OODA loop. And from a uh, just blocking and tackling position is the basic observe, orient, decide, and attack process. And the idea here is that rapid identification, rapid understanding, 
rapid decision and rapid action can allow one to overcome many of the challenges associated with fighting an opponent head on. And so maneuverous, maneuverous thinking, maneuverous philosophy in many cases is predicated on John Boyd's OODA loop and being able to operate within that cycle quicker than the opponent. Theorist William Lynn in his Maneuver Warfare Handbook writes that uh, the John Boyd or the Boyd theory is the theory of maneuver warfare. Lind writes that if one side can, can, in a conflict, can consistently go through the Boyd cycle faster than others, it has a tremendous advantage. The problem, though, with uh, Lind and his his uh, maneuver warfare handbook and its hanging of maneuver theory on the John Boyd cycle is that it first is built on the premise that the Boyd cycle or OODA loops are anything more than a finite way to manage engagements. Uh, there's a lot of lot of uh, theorists, thinkers, scholars out there, uh, practitioners who suggest that the, the OODA loop process is something that uh, can be done at the operational level and strategic level for that matter. Uh, but my understanding of it is that it's, uh, again, it's it's built off the idea of how to win a, a dogfight. And as a result, conceptually, I think those ideas of cycling through those, those processes that are observe, orient, decide, attack rapidly, quicker than the opponent makes sense, again, conceptually. However, in practicality, in terms of the movement of large formations, especially as you get beyond the division level and into the core level, and uh, start looking at more abstract things such as the uh, operational level of war and surely the strategic level. That concept is a underpinning for maneuver makes no sense. Uh, the idea being that those things um, aren't necessarily, uh, they don't have the same reaction time or speed, nor do they have the same input uh, vectors that does an individual caught in an engagement in a cockpit trying to rapidly make decisions on how to fight and survive and uh, destroy an adversary. The whole entire process between um, between that finite engagement and then those larger echelons are completely different. And therefore, the Boyd loop, in my assessment, is not a good tool uh, to, to base maneuver on. Lim continues talking about maneuver warfare, he says that practitioners strive to employ their fire support systems, not just the supporting arms, but as combined arms. And this is one of the problems that maneuver advocates have. Uh, they try to align the good things in war fighting solely with maneuver and not uh, understand or not uh, officially acknowledge the fact that many things such as combined arms, war fighting, aren't just the proprietary secret of maneuver warfare, but they, they are principles that apply across all warfighting uh, methods and techniques. And so, for instance, that comment that Boyd makes here, maneuver warfare practitioners strive to employ their fire support systems, not just the supporting arms, but as combined arms. That, that applies to anything, any smart warfighting, not even smart, any basic warfighting um, method, any force in the field uh, that's engaging an adversary should strive to fight with combined arms, not not reserved for maneuver warfare. He also talks about putting the enemy on the horns of a dilemma, right? And so again, 
This is the uh, striving for advantage. But again, any adversary engaged in armed conflict isn't thinking what's the dumbest way and the least opportune way that I can go about fighting this opponent. They think to themselves, hmm, how can I put the enemy on a horn of dilemma or in the horns of a dilemma, right? How can I best take advantage of what I have, take advantage of the situation, take advantage of the terrain, take advantage of what my adversary has or doesn't have so that I can then uh, win this specific engagement, this battle, uh, this operation, this campaign, whatever the case may be. And so the idea that uh, maneuver specifically is trying to own that idea of advantage to me, again, smacks of uh, another illogical justification that maneuver theorists make about maneuver and their preference for the concept. A final point here on uh, on William Lind. The uh, part of the problem the, with Lind's logic is that it's built on a preference for German war fighting coming out of the Second World War. But again, this is another point that a lot of the German advocates fail to appreciate is that that method of war fighting, while it may have won a couple of campaigns, it, it didn't win the war, right? Uh, the Germans were unable to win the war fighting with what we what we perceive as maneuver. Uh, and, and in many cases, once you know, they were on the defensive. They, did, they didn't use maneuver at all. They couldn't use maneuver. Uh, and this gets to a point we'll talk about uh, here shortly, but uh, the components and the conditions of a situation dictate the method of war fighting, not your preference uh, or your favorite anecdotal uh, selection of, of reading from history. And so Lind and much of his work uh, makes, the, makes the case that, the, you know, maneuver is better because the Germans did it. And that just doesn't stand up to scrutiny as somebody that cares about uh, the the footnotes of concepts and ideas, uh, or I'm sorry, Lynn's footnotes, both metaphorically and literally, don't uh, don't hold up to scrutiny. And uh, when you dig deeper into the underpinnings of of Lynn's idea, it's essentially uh, it all boils down to maneuvers better. Don't question me. Uh, it's that trust me, bro line of logic. And uh, because of that, you know, don't don't question the process. Just go with the flow and uh, maneuver is the best way to fight. Looking more at the theoretical foundations of maneuver, one of the major footnotes uh, that, that recurs in, in a lot of the contemporary scholarship on maneuver warfare is, is Edward Lutwak's uh, the American style of warfare and the military balance. And when you read the paper, it's one of the first things where you really see uh, attrition versus maneuver drawn out in plain language. And so Lutwak says that, uh, for one, he says that the U.S., and this was written in the early 80s, I don't have this specific date right handy, but he says that the U.S., the American way of warfare was essentially positional rather than, or not, I'm sorry, rather attritional than it was maneuver, but that maneuver is better and therefore we need to adopt maneuver. He describes maneuver as a relational action and that it depends on intelligence more so than an intellect, more so than attrition warfare. So he's really one of the first people uh, in the modern era 
to define maneuver as a smarter way of warfighting and attrition or less than uh, intellectually uh, demanding way of warfighting. Another point uh, related to that is that he says that the side whose resources are inferior overall can only prevail by successful maneuver. And so when I read that, I think, what's your source? What's your footnote? What's your evidence? But the problem with this uh, paper in general is that it has zero footnotes. None of these ideas are substantiated by any kind of evidence. Uh, and again, going back to the comments on Lynn and his uh, Maneuver Warfare Handbook, much of what Lutwak says in here is just trust me, bro. The logic behind this maneuver versus attrition argument, when you dig a little deeper, when you pop the hood and you try and look for the show me the empirical evidence, it just isn't there. Another comment here on Lutwak is that he does acknowledge the, the relevance and importance, if you will, of attrition. And I'm going to Read a brief quote here. He says, the key to victory in maneuver is forced disruption rather than destruction. Of course, there will be some attrition, but its purpose must be to dislocate the enemy's system of war rather than to reduce his force in piecemeal combat. The goal is to force the enemy to abandon his program rather than, rather than to just reduce his forces that he has to implement that program. And so this is the interesting thing here. So, you know, scholars, theorists, practitioners all try to, not all, that's an overgeneralization, but many try to, you know, diametrically oppose these ideas and say once, you know, one's bad, one's stupid, one's, you know, poor use of resources, pick your, pick your uh, ad hominem attack. And that's, that's where attrition lies. And then the glorious, way of fighting war, the smart way of fighting war, the, the uh, intellectual, you know, dominant form of warfare is maneuver. Yet here in this, in this document, tucked, tucked way in the back here is this recognition of the importance of attrition. And so it's interesting because the, it seems the argument that Lutwak is making, and this is the argument that many other folks seem to make, is that attrition's not bad per se, but the destruction, the focus on the destruction of an enemy's force is bad. But at the same time, they advocate that the purpose of attrition is to dislocate the enemy's force rather than to reduce the forces that the enemy has at his disposal. That strikes me as completely illogical because um, if you're doing attrition, which means, in my mind, destroying things, by fact of destroying things, you are therefore reducing his force. And so there's this, this whole thing is this discontinuity. What he's talking about is the purpose. The purpose of destroying a force is to dislocate the enemy's system. But then he tries to play off the purpose as not being the destruction of force. That's fine but you are destroying forces, destroying forces, destroying things, destroying parts of the enemy is still an important component of maneuver, of attrition, of broadly speaking, war fighting. And so this is one of the illogical things that I think Lutwak falls prey to, but many prey to this, this illogical leap of logic here and trying to assume that even though you have to kill people and break stuff, 
and sometimes you have to do it in a way that you wouldn't like to do it in terms of you're in a bad spot and you have to just go straight forward into the attack. But that that is a very viable and needed form of engagement, form of warfare and warfighting as you, as you would try to address uh, adversarial problems on the battlefield. Another central figure in the, the discussion on maneuver and attrition uh, warfare theory is, is Robert Leonard. But in his influential book, The Art of Maneuver, uh, the subtitle being Maneuver Warfare Theory in Airland Battle, he talks about this, again, this dichotomy between maneuver and attrition. And this book was published in 1991. Uh, and so it's important to keep that in mind when we talk about this, because this is very much a uh, Cold War era um, uh, publication and a set of ideas. And so uh, Leonard does a good job here, I think, of, of bringing forward some of the ideas Simpkin called out in his, his book, The Race to the Swift, right? He talks about uh, the attrition addict appreciates war's intangibles, sees them only as combat multipliers in which to fight attrition battles better. And so one of the key things, and this is one of the key points that uh, many people that try to discredit the idea of attrition bring to bear is this idea of uh, force ratios, loss ratios, uh, COFOMs or the correlation of forces and means, this comparison between what I bring to the fight and what you bring to the fight. And so uh, Leonard has a good, a good line where he says, attrition warfare enthusiasts seek to improve the force ratio by achieving and sustaining an acceptable loss ratio over the enemy. And a doctrine founded upon such a theory holds the logic of algebra as an overriding guide above and beyond all other aspects of the problem. And that's interesting. Uh, that's an interesting quote, and I think he intentionally does this. Uh, but that ties in some of the uh, something that was mentioned by, uh, you know, Prussian theorist uh, Karl von Clausewitz, where he talks about the idea that uh, you can't fight wars uh, by algebra. And so I thought that that was a nice little wrinkle that that uh, Leonard put in there, and uh, and so it's important to note that because again that that idea that uh, attrition's built on um, force ratios and loss ratios and exchange rates, it's one of the key principles that many maneuver theorists advocate um, is 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 a reason for why attrition theory is 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 bad. And attrition itself is bad. As we continue looking at Leonard and discussing Leonard, he has uh, a good comment on centers of gravity, and he talks that uh, that uh, maneuverists focus on centers of gravity, whereas attritionists just pound away at whatever's in front of them. And so, again, that's an interesting concept because I think that, uh, and we'll get to this in a in a future podcast when we discuss uh, centers of gravity. But centers of gravity generally uh, in modern militaries don't don't actually exist. Modern militaries are too robust and redundant and have too many uh, mechanisms in place to where that uh, they don't fall prey to centers of gravity, right? And so that's an important feature of this discussion. You know, and as many centers of gravity advocates will suggest, uh, those centers of gravity are, they are not a source of strength, but rather, rather critical vulnerabilities. And so, maneuverists try to not focus on an adversary's source of strength as a point of attack 
or a point of, you know, attack at whatever echelon they may be at, whether that's some finite tactical uh, element or, you know, a grand theater army, but they focus on the, the adversary's critical vulnerabilities. And so again, that discerning that, if you can figure that out, I don't know why you would even necessarily be involved in, in combat to begin with, because if you were able to, you know, sit and do a center of gravity analysis and identify the magic button, which in many cases cogs, cogs are portrayed at, portrayed as, uh, and be able to find these critical vulnerabilities through some quick and easy staff work. I don't know that you would even be at the point at needing uh, to do this or even having the argument about which is better, centers of gravity or uh, maneuver warfare. Now, the thing with maneuver warfare theory, uh, debating its merits against those of attrition is you could you can run down the rabbit hole all day and uh, introduce any number of theorists and any number of practitioners and any number of pieces of doctrine, right? Because doctrine today is replete with uh, maneuverist thinking. But if you did that, it would uh, take away the time that we need to uh, discuss other things as it relates to maneuver and attrition. But in order to carry the conversation forward, we're going to go ahead and move forward and talk to talk to the components and the conditions uh, aspect of, of the discussion now. Any warfighting concept or any warfighting idea or any warfighting methodology uh, requires components and conditions for it to be executed. And the way that a military force wants to fight in, in many cases is largely irrelevant. And so many Western militaries, they will straight up say, we do maneuver or we don't do attrition. I've recently heard as well, the uh, training centers uh, and Western military training centers have said, you know, we're going to make maneuver great again. We're going to prove to, uh, to naysayers out there that uh, that maneuver isn't dead and maneuver is not in a coma. And this training center is going to prove that. To address some of those concerns, I think it's important to highlight the role that components and conditions play. I've previously written that maneuver's death is a result of conditionality. You can find my arguments in a Rusi journal from 2021 entitled Maneuver is Dead. And it's not an exclamation mark or period, but a question mark, because I was examining a question posed by both uh, Heather Venerable and uh, Dr. Anthony King on whether or not maneuver was actually dead or not. In my research and in my work, I found tongue-in-cheek to say that maneuver is dead, and it's dead because of a couple of reasons, but one is conditionality. So the situation has to allow for maneuver. And so there's a couple of things that go into that, one of which is the terrain. Does terrain allow you to be uh, maneuverable, right? And what is maneuverable? Maneuverable means uh, do you have mobility? Are you able to move? Uh, in relation to an adversary. And so if you're stuck in a situation where you can't move, uh, whether that's because you're in a, a mountainous environment or a heavily wooded environment or a you know wet, watery, swampy type environment, whatever the case may be, if, if you don't have the ability to move, and again, this is at, at, at scale, right? 
if it doesn't possess the ability to move in the terrain that it's in, it cannot do maneuver. At the same time, if that element doesn't possess equal to, if not greater than, mobility in relation to its adversary, it cannot do maneuver. So if two, two forces are both boot mounted, right? If they're both dismounted forces, then they have uh, movement parity. They, they can move at the same general clip. However, if the adversary has some sort of wheeled vehicle and you are uh, generally uh, boot bound, right? Then they have mobility superiority and asymmetry. And so therefore, the ability for you to conduct maneuver in relation to your adversary is, is not really there. Now the adversary, because they possess mobility asymmetry, can conduct maneuver against you. And so slapping the table and saying, we don't do attrition or we don't, uh, we do maneuver, um, or we are going to make maneuver great again, dictate whether or not that's actually true or not. Continuing on with the conditionality of maneuver as it relates to uh, terrain and, and mobility asymmetry, it's also important to note that uh, war today is fought in many cases in urban areas. Um, and so urban areas, much like a heavily wooded area or mountainous terrain or any other type of uh, terrain that inhibits movement, works directly in in conflict with, with maneuver and a force a military force's ability to conduct maneuver. So with the increasing urbanization of warfare that we're seeing today, and Anthony King writes and talks a lot about this, right? Military forces are getting smaller, so the ability to bypass uh, uh, urban areas is, is actually decreasing. And because of uh, many asymmetric advantages that adversaries have over others as it relates to reconnaissance strike and precision strike. Urban areas are becoming the number one area in which disadvantaged forces seek refuge to offset those capabilities of uh, of an aggressor who has the ability to uh, to see and strike at great distance with great precision. And because of that, again, urban uh, warfighting, or not warfighting, urban environments are becoming the preferred destination of uh, nearly all military forces. As forces seek refuge in urban areas, the ability to conduct maneuver again decreases exponentially as the environment becomes more suffocating, right? And so pick any decent sized city and say, how do we conduct maneuver here? In many cases, you you just can't. You're you're predisposed to move down one route or a couple routes in in a single file along predictable paths of march, and it's that problem's even uh, amplified even more if your opponent has decided to lay out things that uh, you know um, ways to funnel you into certain certain routes, right? And in many cases, some of the obstacles that they could put forward can can completely Block a block a force's ability to move down uh, those roads. These factors have to be considered uh, before just before just slapping the table and saying, you know, we do maneuver. Maneuver is better than this or that. You know, in many cases, there are there are alternatives to maneuver that are more advantageous. Positional warfighting, right? 
I'm going to go take a piece of terrain. I'm in this bad terrain, but that little spot over there, if I can move over to point B and lure the adversary out of point D and I can get him in the open and then, you know, engage him and destroy him in the open between those two points, then I can occupy point D, which is where I really want to be, right? These methods of exchange based off terrain and capability uh, an adversary are important to understand, but are often overlooked uh, when folks just blindly advocate for maneuver over all else. That covers a lot of the, the points on conditionality. There's also components, and so this was somewhat alluded to when we discussed the, uh, the mobility aspect, right? You have to possess the capability to conduct maneuver, which means you have to have things, you know, that can make you move on the ground or in the air, generally equal to or greater than that of your opponent, right? And so those are capabilities, whether that's tanks, whether that's armored personnel carriers or, or some sort of a wheeled fleet or helicopters, whatever the case may be. Uh, those have to be things that are, that are usable in the situation, usable in the terrain, usable against the, the enemy based off their capabilities that they're bringing to bear. Otherwise, um, you know, the, the law of conditionality says that that's not going to happen. And so, therefore, the components uh, are, are critical integrating functions or integrating capabilities, integrating things that make maneuver happen. Um, in addition to that, uh, one, of the, one of the most important things that you have to have in order to be able to conduct maneuver is some sort of reconnaissance. And I don't mean horses and cavalry that uh, helps you minimize the impact, you know, the the leading with your face frontal attack aspect of, of moving. And today, in many cases, Western militaries are gutting reconnaissance capabilities in favor for aerial observation platforms, aerial sensors, which in many cases are good, but at the same time, there is a degree of, of uh, sub-optimization that occurs with that because they can't quite see all the things that they need to see. Uh, and, and again, this goes back to some of the fundamentals of reconnaissance and security operations, where you have to have depth and multiple angles to conduct good reconnaissance. And as uh, Western militaries continue to divest uh, land reconnaissance, ground-based uh, reconnaissance capabilities, they lose that, that aspect of good reconnaissance, that depth and multiple angles because they, they tend to just view things from above on a computer screen. And so as we continue to uh, see Western militaries get rid of reconnaissance capability, especially those on the ground for the forces that are actually doing the maneuver, if, if that's uh, the option selected, uh, their ability to actually do maneuver decreases uh, when they don't have those capabilities. And so commanders are trying to leverage reconnaissance, land-based or air-based reconnaissance capabilities. Um, they need that because they need to find and identify routes that bypass the, the enemy's strength uh, or the enemy's front or whatever the case may be, the enemy's you know, lead element. And so without good reconnaissance, not even good reconnaissance, just without reconnaissance, that's not capable. And so um, that's an important factor here to consider as well as we talk about the differences between maneuver, attrition, and other forms of, of uh, fighting.
to close the conversation on maneuver today, it's uh, instruct instructive to go back to the theory here and to uh, some theorists. And so Christopher Tuck uh, has a good book, Understanding Land Warfare, came out a couple years ago, 2019, I believe. Uh, no, 2022. And in that book, he lays out a couple points that I'm just going to read here that I think are good bookends to this conversation. He says, attritional approaches are often characterized as unimaginative and ineffective, whereas maneuver approaches, such as General Schwarzkopf's left flank movement against Iraqis in the 1991 Gulf War or General MacArthur's landing at Inchon in 1950, are seen as imaginative, bold, and decisive. In reality, attrition and maneuver are related concepts. Maneuver is not a means to an end. For this reason, maneuver and attrition are synergistic. Attrition gives maneuver meaning. Maneuver needs to be translated into attrition if it is to generate a military effect. Attrition can also be a precursor to maneuver in that a period of attrition may be required in order to wear down an opponent to the point at which breakdown and subsequent mobile exploitation are possible. And Tuck's last comment on this is that he says, even success in operational scale mobile warfare comes at a cost. Indeed, the success of mobile operations often tended to build on the foundations of costly positional battles of attrition. Moreover, if attrition were ultimately a prerequisite for restoring maneuver, it could also be said in itself an expedient to the exercise of effective operational art. And that positional warfare is still a important component of enabling mobile warfare. And so I think that Tuck, his arguments there are a really good way to close out this conversation. And some maneuver warfare is not the answer, nor the only answer, nor the best answer, but is a conditional and situational solution that can be used when appropriate but it's not always appropriate nor is it somehow any better than any other form of war fighting thank you for joining me today on revolution of military affairs where the science of war exceeds the bounds of ideology